communication and disclosure when you're starting your deal is disclose things to your tenants, disclose things to your investors, because that protects you from problems later and it shields you from liability when you disclose these items. Hi, you're listening to Ready to Scale, the second season of That Really Happened. This season is focused on APS of real estate, asset, process, and strategy. Each guest on the show will reveal the assets they invest in and why they chose to do so. From multifamily to industrial, self-storage, mobile home parks, and more. Then, they'll uncover the processes, tools, and systems they've used to build multi-million dollar businesses. And finally, they'll uncover new, unique, and exciting strategies to invest in real estate. From co-working to buy and hold, fix and flips, co-living, and much, much more. Now let's get the show started. Hey guys, welcome to Ready to Scale. I'm Ellie Perlman, your host, broadcasting from sunny California. When I'm not behind the mic, I buy multifamily properties with passive investors who partner with me on my deals. So Ready to Scale is our new second season here where we focus on the business side of real estate. Namely, three key concepts that I like to call APS of real estate. So we're going to talk about asset, process, and strategy. So by listening in, you will learn valuable business principles that can help your real estate business, help you build it and scale it. If you enjoy the podcast, please take a minute to rate us. And don't forget to like and follow along with me on social media as well. Okay, so this month I'm giving away an acquisitions manager spreadsheet that lays out the stages in the acquisitions process and will help you track all the deals you have in your pipeline. The spreadsheet also contains information about the brokerage firms my company Blue Lake sources deals from. So with the spreadsheet, I'm also adding the acquisitions process guide to walk you through the different internal acquisition steps. So use both documents for better results. You can customize the Excel spreadsheet, but it's a great template to use in the acquisition process. That's the same one that I'm using myself. You can find the documents at www.ellieperlman.com slash resources. So our guest today is Jeff Love. Jeff is partner with Gibbs Gidden, where he specializes in real estate securities and corporate finance. He has been involved in all aspects of real estate transactions, negotiating, sales, syndication, and financing transactions in over all types of assets from commercial to residential and everything in between. Jeff has several professional membership, including the State Bar of California, LA County Bar Association, and Land Institute in Los Angeles Young Leader Group. Jeff was awarded top-rated Southern California Super Lawyers Rising Star in 2018 and again in 2019. And without further ado, I would like to welcome Jeff to the show. Hey, Jeff. Hey, thanks so much for having me. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I don't think we've had a lawyer on the show, so you're probably going to be the first one. So I'm really excited to have you here. Great. I'm excited to be here. All right. So tell us a little bit about kind of your background, when you started to get involved in real estate and, and what is it that you do besides of you know everything that I've just described, of course. I've been interested and involved in real estate almost my whole life. I've had 
numerous family friends that have been real estate developers. So I've kind of caught the bug at an early age and after college went to law school specifically to get involved in real estate and become a real estate attorney. Unfortunately for me, I graduated at the downturn our last recession, 2009 and 10. So I wasn't able to get a job as a real estate attorney and was, was almost crushed. So I actually turned down numerous better paying positions to go in-house to get real estate experience. So I'm, kind of, I'm one of the lucky ones that just stayed patient and ended up where I am today doing exactly what I want to do, which is real estate transactions for big, small Fortune 100 companies and also investing in real estate on my own as well. That's awesome. So you're a real estate investor, but also a real estate lawyer. Yes. I have probably, if I had to estimate as a, an attorney, been involved in over probably about a billion dollars worth of transactions in the real estate arena. And as an investor, either as through my own company or as a passive investor, through some of my clients' deals, probably over $100 million of real estate. That's very impressive. So you probably, you've seen it all. And I think uh, you can definitely share, you know, some golden nuggets with us. So I'm, I'm excited to, you know, just to ask you questions and, you know, have you share your experience. I don't know if you know, but I used to be a real estate lawyer also back actually a little bit before the crash. So I've experienced the crash also. It was very, very painful for my clients mainly. I can definitely relate. All right, so let's start talking a little bit about the APS of real estate, and we'll start with assets. So in your bio, I've mentioned that you're not only focused on one type of asset class, but you're handling commercial and residential, pretty much all types of, of real estate. Can you talk about the different types of assets that you're involved with? And also what I'm interested in learning is what type of asset tends to be more legally complicated than others? Sure. So we handle, have clients run across the kind of asset sphere, if you want to sort of speak. We have clients that are buying, investing, developing in, in retail. We handle industrial. We do multifamily. And then we touch in the hospitality sphere. They each have their own pluses and minuses and difficulties. Personally, I'm, I'm invested in the multifamily arena, and I find that to be really the easiest asset class to get involved in, because not only from the price range, but it is something that most people are familiar with. They're familiar with renters that need a place to live. They know the essentially the cons of multifamily, which could be the maintenance issues. You don't always need a real estate broker to release a unit. You can handle that yourself or your property management company. So it's a very familiar asset class and that a lot of beginning investors tend to get involved with. From there, you know, retail, industrial, and office are, I'd say, a little bit more advanced asset classes in the fact that you're often dealing with a real estate broker to, to lease the unit. You're dealing with much more complex leases, the terms that may be negotiated. Financing can be more difficult because you get out of the residential financing, which is typically from your single family home up to four units. But that said, we've had investors, you know, in all asset classes, they they search whatever deal is most promising and get the best cash flow they'll enter into. And I've had clients that 
specifically focus on one asset class and maybe one geographic location. So it really depends on the investor and their sophistication, what they're looking for and what they're really able to take on. So if it were up to you and you were one of your clients, would you, which one would you choose? I choose multifamily. And like I said, that's what I invest in personally. And I gravitate towards multifamily because I think that's an asset class that will always be here. People will always need a place to live. Single family homes are becoming more and more expensive, especially in Southern California where we are. So there's always a rental demand if you have a property in a good location with good fundamentals. What we're seeing is retail being very hard hit by Amazon and other online retailers. So people with big box stores, your Best Buys, your, your Walmarts, there has been some contraction in that market as the online presence continues to escalate. So more and more investors are leaving retail because of the difficulties inherent in, in that asset and moving to industrial in storage facilities, logistics companies. But for me personally, I think multifamily will always be there and is a good place to to get your feet wet and continue to grow and scale. Right. And and you know, obviously I share your, you know, your understanding and passion of, you know, multifamily and that's my choice of asset class as well and I'm passively investing in other asset classes with other sponsors as well in addition to my own deals, but I think you're absolutely right. It's it's always, you know, something everybody needs a roof above their heads and there's always going to be a demand for multifamily. I find it interesting that Amazon was actually you know, they're one of the reasons why retail is struggling so much. And yet, I don't know if you've seen, but in Brentwood, not so far away from my house, there's a new Amazon store. So if they, they're doing the, the opposite move. They're moving from an online retail store to brick and mortar, which I found to be pretty, you know, interesting. It definitely is. And it's, it's kind of strange when you see an Amazon retail store when they are the internet giant. Yeah. It's kind of in the, the sense that Amazon is so big that they can do that. And the stores are also functioning as drop-off and eventually pickup locations. So they're leveraging their online presence where people can go drop off packages and pick them up. It's really the mom and pop retailers with the, the pricing that can't compete with the online presence. And even some of the big box stores where they're learning that they don't need as much square footage. So those those properties are contracting and those landlords are having to, to think, what can I do with this asset? And that's why, at least in you know California and Los Angeles, you're seeing a lot of creative office as well that used to be prior retail spaces. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. All right, so let's uh, move to and talk about process. So you're you're very much you know hands on. You're very involved in the transaction phase of the deal. And you know what I'm interested in uh, learning from you is you know what are the most common mistakes or the most terrible mistakes that you have witnessed as a real estate lawyer? You know, probably working with 
with more experience and, and less experienced investors. And I know that in every transactions, you know, in real estate, nothing goes as smoothly as you hope. There's always going to be, you know, an unexpected thing you have to deal with. But basically my question is, what are, you know, the most fundamental or terrible mistakes that you've seen investors do? I'll give you my top, let's say three or four. The, the first one has to be is just not having the right team in place at the outset. So we've, as I say, we have clients, let's call it mom and pop investors. You're, you you want to get into real estate. You're just starting out to Fortune 100 developers. And you do see mistakes throughout the, the, the range of, of clients. But one of the first ones is not having your team in place. So you you, you buy a property, you don't have a good tax advisor or accountant. You don't have legal counsel to help you with documents. You may not be using brokers, so you are leaving money on the table or not pushing back on certain issues in a purchase agreement where you should be. So having that team in place from the outset can really help you make the right choices and to avoid mistakes that you would have to deal with later. And when the mistakes come to someone like me after the fact, they're usually much harder to fix than if you were to get all your ducks in a row, so to speak, from the outset. Another of the kind of big things that we have seen is lack of communication or lack of disclosure, especially when you are getting into syndication and you are dealing with passive investors. It's just absolutely critical, and I can't stress it enough, is to communicate with your investors. Even if it's just you know a monthly email to tell them that everything is going well, people really tend to get nervous when they don't hear from you. And when you communicate, even if there's no news, it puts them at ease and avoids people getting nervous. And when people get nervous or get worried, that's when problems tend to result. So communication and disclosure, when you're starting your deal is disclose things to your tenants, disclose things to your investors, because that protects you from problems later and it shields you from liability when you disclose these items. The third item, especially in multifamily, which we deal with a lot, is to treat your investment like a business. You're bringing cash flow, you have expenses, it is a business. So to treat it like a business, not to commingle assets with yourself or with other businesses, especially when you have investors because then it takes it to a whole new level but treat it like a business and you will avoid problems in the future. And I'd say the number four and probably one of the biggest ones that we see is don't overpromise and underdeliver. It sounds simple enough, but that leads to litigation and problems with investors that didn't receive the returns that they were promised. Be conservative in your underwriting and, and, and tell your investors, you know, what you can get them, don't overpromise to bring them in because then if things go wrong, not only do you have a problem, but that investor is not going to be a repeat investor, which is something that you really want when you're looking to scale is keep that investor happy, give them what you promised, and you have an investor for life and this deal and the deals to come. I cannot agree more. And I think especially on the last part, I think there's so many ways to be conservative 
and show numbers that are lower than what you actually think you can. You can underwrite to lower rents. You can underwrite to higher, you know, debt payments than what you actually would get. So you can basically say, hey, we can get X percent returns, but you can actually, you're planning on getting X plus one. But I think even though, you know, you show a, a certain return, these are all projections. And I make, you know, for me, when I speak with investors, I, I keep telling them nothing is certain in real estate. These are projections Nobody can promise you any return. And some new investors are asking me, those who have never invested in, in a syndication before, are those returns, you know, what will happen if, if it's not, if you're not going to be able to deliver or are these, can you promise, can you guarantee that we'll get those returns? And, you know, I, I used to be alert, so I'm very, I'm very uh, careful about what I say and I keep telling them. Nobody can promise. If someone guarantees return to you, this is a red flag and you should look into it because nobody can. And I think there's ways to legally protect yourself from, you know, from lawsuits. The, the private placement memorandum, the PPM that you, that you probably draft that we send to investors mentions that these are all projections and we say it over and over. But I think you know, my feeling is that the more communicative you are and, and transparent, lower is the likelihood that you would be sued by investors. It's one thing not to not to basically deliver, but it's a whole nother game. And this is bad as, as is. I'm not saying that this is acceptable at all, but it's a whole nother game not to be communicative. Go, you know... Go dark, go under the radar when things are bad. No, you have to communicate with your investors, even if it's even if the news are not if it's not good news and you want to tell them what's happening, you have to tell them what's happening. So I think you hit the nail on the head. I mean, this is exactly the type of mistakes that I also see, at least some of them, especially with new syndicators. Yeah, the word you kind of honed in on is is guarantee. And as a lawyer, that is the scariest word we can hear because when we hear guarantee, we investors that you can tell them 10 other items and you say guarantee, that's the one that's going to stick with them. And if you don't hit that return, that's when you have a disgruntled investor that, that comes to you after the fact and says, you guaranteed me this amount. And you have to come back and say, no, this was, these were all projections. And that is something that we get day in and day out. You mentioned the private place memorandum, which we do when we're selling securities to passive investors. And we have pages of disclosures where we say these are hypothetical projections, they're forward-looking statements. And while we think these are the returns we're going to get, there are no guarantees. Real estate is, is a risky investment, just like investing in the stock market. And you invest in Apple computer, you don't have a guarantee when you're investing in stocks. There is not one in real estate, so you need to be willing to accept that risks. And if you do, and the project is underwritten conservatively and by someone that knows what they're doing, you will get returns commiserate with that risk. Absolutely. And I think the ability to have or, or the idea that someone can provide you with a guarantee you know, or a promise for a certain return, that might be a misconception especially with with new investors. Have you seen any other misconceptions, you know, throughout your career, either in the, during the transaction process or after the deal was closed? 
Yes, there are a few. So one, especially in the real estate process with new investors, I'd say thinking guaranteed returns are guaranteed is probably the number one. Others have to do with, with timing or not understanding the goal of the sponsor in a deal, whether it, this is, if this is a development project and we're projecting that it's going to be built in three years, expecting that I get my money back on that day because a lot of investors don't realize there's a construction process, there's delays in construction, there are times to lease out a multifamily building or to sell at the first sale condominiums, time to sell, value add projects, again, there's construction issues. So one is, another big issue would be a time misconception. And a third issue is just, I'd say, not understanding real estate as an asset class, and goes back to kind of the guarantee is that there are risks that returns are are not guaranteed, timing's not guaranteed, and just understanding that you are a passive investor in in a deal, although it's a business, you don't have the control and say over what happens. Usually you do with big decisions, but the day-to-day, you are really turning that over to the sponsor or the, the company that is running the deal, so you need to feel comfortable with, with them, and that brings back into the communication issue that they're going to communicate with you and you are comfortable having them be responsible for your money. You know, almost, almost like a financial advisor of sort, you are trusting their decision-making process and that you are comfortable with, with them running the deal. Absolutely. Absolutely. So I want to move to the last part of our interview and talk about strategy. So as a lawyer, you were probably exposed to all kinds of interesting and unique strategies. Can you share one or two strategies that extremely impressed you or blown you away? The number one that we strategy that we see in clients, and it's nothing out of the box or, or, or special, but it's when you implement it correctly, is, is really the due diligence process. And since we've been talking about multifamily, especially with multifamily, because when you have an investor, especially when you're dealing with small units as you start to scale, and maybe you go to a duplex or a triplex, a quad, is thinking that it's small so you don't have to think about all the details you would in a 200-unit property. So you may use the purchase agreement that the broker delivers to you. And you don't worry about the representations that a seller may be giving to you, which which are can be critical. You may not worry about getting an estoppel certificate from a tenant. And then after the fact, the tenant comes to you and tells you that the prior landlord promised you A, B, and C, and your cash flow projections just went out the window. So it is the strategy is implementing due diligence in the proper way, no matter the size of the asset from underwriting the property to the purchase agreement and the estoppel certificates to reviewing your financing documents to make sure that everything is done as promised and then buttoning up all the loose items after your closing from getting your proper team in place to dealing with your tenants. Yeah, absolutely. I think it doesn't matter if you're buying three doors or 300 doors that has to be, I mean, the diligence it just has to be on point. And, and I think it goes back to your first point about when we started the interview about having a team in place. If you have the right team in place, they can help you 
do the due diligence. As an investor, you don't have to do everything on your own. You have the team, you have the property manager, you know, obviously the lender is also surprisingly going to do, you know, take an active part of the due diligence. So if you don't have the team in place, sometimes you don't even know what to ask. You don't know how to do things and how to interpret. I mean, the you, you have all the information, but what does it mean? Sometimes it's not that clear. So when you do have a team in place, that can definitely help in the due diligence. Yeah. And I've seen that both from a legal perspective and advisor as one of the team members. And personally, when my company bought its first quad in Los Angeles, I made sure I had a broker that I knew and trusted to look at the local market. I had my mortgage broker in place so that he could go out and find the best financing because I wanted a, personally for this property, it was a buy and hold strategy. So I was able to get a 30 year fixed at a phenomenal rate because I had that mortgage broker in place. I acted as the attorney myself. So I, for this deal, I was able to look at the purchase agreement before going too far. I was able to make sure that I had the estoppel certificates in place. So it's not just, I've been able to experience that not only from the advisor standpoint, but personally, and I think having that in place was able to, would help me get this first deal done and kind of get rid of those those first those first jitters when you you're buying your first property it's it's always scary i have clients that you know they're nervous it's it's a big investment it's something they may not be familiar having that team in place can lessen some of that nerves and you can rely on someone else that has experience that you may not have or you may not even know that you're missing Absolutely. Absolutely. All right, Jeff. So we are at the lightning round question phase. Are you ready? I am ready. All right. So Jeff, what's your favorite hobby? I've got two little kids, so I haven't been able to do it as much lately, but I am an active skier. So whenever I can, we get up to the mountains and I actually taught my my three-year-old how to ski last year. So I'm hoping that we can get up again this coming winter. Awesome. Awesome. Oh, I, I, I'm so jealous because, you know, if you learn how to ski when you're three, you're going to be such an expert skier and nothing is going to scare you by the time you're going to hit 15 or 20. It's, it's a gift that you're giving your kids. So way to go. Next question. What's the one thing people don't know about you? One thing people don't know about me is I have developed a, lately and again, I've tried to be outdoors as much as I can is active kayaker. My wife and I went to the Czech Republic this last summer and we were kayaking down the bottom of a river in a city called Chesky Krumlov. And amazing story is that in the middle of July, it started to pour in rain and then it hailed on us in the middle of this river and our first time kayaking there. So that was a, a pretty unique kayaking experience to be hailed on in July. Wow. But you continued kayaking, right? Yes. You're still going to do it. My wife may take a little more convincing, but I, I think I think we'll keep doing it. Got it. All right. Next question. What do you wish you had known before you started out? I wish I knew it probably kind of hard to say, but knowing the things that you don't know is is critical. And as an attorney, you don't always want to tell a client that you don't know. As an investor, you don't want to tell your partners or something that you don't know. But that's it's so incredibly dangerous because that's where problems arise. So I wish that I had known that it's okay to ask for help. Go ask your partner to help you double check these numbers. Go ask you know, my law partners. I go in and ask a tax question. 
because getting the right answer is just paramount in this industry. So being able to say that that it's okay, that I don't know, it's not a bad thing. And it, it, it can just save so many, so many problems in the future. Absolutely. What is your number one advice to a real estate investor who wants to scale their business? Make sure you have your, your ducks in a row. It goes back to the, the get your team in place, being able to rely on other people. It gets rid of those jitters. My first property we bought, I was scared. It's a scary process. Being able to rely on other people helps less than that. Once you get your first property under your belt, you learn how to do it, you get your second one, and then you, you just scale from there. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. All right, Jeff. Well, thank you so much for being on the show today. If our listeners want to reach out to you, where can they find you? They can go to our website, which is gibbsgidden.com. You can also email me at jlove at gibbsgidden.com. And gibbsgidden is G-I-B-B-S-G-I-D-E-N. That's correct. All right. Perfect. Thank you again, Jeff. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.